You're listening to Working in Oncology, a podcast and video show that spotlights oncology practice staff and industry influencers who work behind the scenes to shape the future of oncology. The more knowledge the oncology community shares with each other, the more we all grow. Let's get into the show. Welcome to Working in Oncology. I'm your co-host, Alicia Evans. I'm joined today by Jeff Bachman, EVP and Oncology Practice Head at Cello Health Bioconsulting. CHBC is a leading strategic consultancy helping biopharma inflect value with their early pre-POC programs. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alicia. Very, very honored to be here. Thanks. I am excited about our conversation today. I think a lot of our listeners are curious about what goes on behind the scenes of oncology drug development. So why is there funding for this treatment of one diagnosis versus another? Who makes these decisions and why, right? I think you'll be able to shed some light on the subject. I hope so. Sam, so before we jump into the show, can you tell our viewers a little bit more about you, your background, and what you do? Sure. So I got to where I am through both hard work and, and serendipity. So, you know, I started in, in academia, did the, uh, the PhD route and the postdoc route. And then after that, went to a startup biotech working in cancer and infectious diseases. My background was originally in infectious diseases and was with that startup biotech for a couple of years. I was one of the first scientists to, to join it. And, and of course, that got exposed to some of the financial and investment side of being an early stage biotech, uh, engaging with some of the investors, et cetera. And then I left the biotech and started, started kind of consulting on my own and ultimately consulted to the legacy company of where I'm at now, which is uh, Defined Health, which you know was acquired and became Cello Health Bioconsulting. So, but that, that kind of shift was a, a, a lot of happenstance, right? It's not like I sat down and said, oh, I want to be a consultant, didn't even know what it was. So, so it was really just a, you know, opportunism on, on my part, connecting with, you know, the right company, a great group of people, particularly the, the founder of, of Divine Health, who is now the executive chairman, and really enjoying the kind of mingling scientific, clinical, and kind of commercial elements that we do every day, and all the multitasking, right? It's, it's never a dull moment. So many different agents and companies with different questions and concerns that we're working with across all different tumor types of cancer, as well as the work we do outside of cancer. So, Wow, it's a, it's a pretty broad range of experience there. Yeah, well, there are even other diversions and digressions along the way, but you know, maybe we'll get to those later. So in the world of therapy development, there are several different players in the process some names that we're familiar with or some uh, that we're, but we're not. Can you help go over like, who are the usual players? Who is making these decisions? Who's developing these therapies? <laughs> that's a, that's the big question. So first of all, I'd say is that, you know, the, the industry, the biopharma industry is made up of a variety of key stakeholders, right? There are the Pharma companies, obviously, who most people know about, right? The Merck's and the Pfizer's and the Bristol Myers, et, et cetera, the Roche Genentech. And then there is a whole group of what we'll call the innovators. Not to say that pharma aren't innovative, but much of the novel and new drugs that they are ultimately bringing to market are deriving from these biotechs. 
and that's the biotechs who are most of our clients, at least in oncology. And those biotechs obviously are funded by venture capital, by and large, although these days, you know, increasingly also public money because they can readily go to the market and raise quite significant funds uh, during this past uh, year (laughs) and a half. And then, of course, you know, part of that ecosystem, too, are, you know, the regulatory agencies and the different, com- you know, different countries, et cetera. But, but if we think of it just more simply in terms of the funders, the VCs, the developers, and ultimately the marketers, pharma, and then the innovators being the biotech, that's kind of the, kind of the tripartite core of, of kind of where this all begins. And hopefully... And I think it's relatively true, you know, much of what is being funded at early stage in these innovative companies is trying to address, you know, high unmet need areas. That's not to say that every one of them, you know, if they were to be approved, is going to change the treatment paradigm. Sometimes the important improvements can be smaller and, and incremental, but, you know, mostly they are trying to look for, you know, where there are significant unmet needs, where, you know, either in large tumor types that everyone knows about where there's still unmet needs like HER2 positive breast cancer or much smaller niche type of tumor types where, you know, maybe less attention has been paid in part maybe because they're very challenging spaces to work in like glioblastoma or even some of the rare, rare sarcomas, et cetera. Got it. So when we look at a typical therapy, can you help us track kind of the development process? So maybe a popular medication or therapy like a Keytruder or something. Can you help us check how these, how it got developed and how it came to market? Oh, yes. Well, yeah, at a, at a high level, yes. <laughs> I think one of the more interesting things about Keytruder is the fact that in many ways that was serendipitous in the sense that that was a program going on, I think, within Organon that was acquired by Shearing Plow. Didn't have much attention to Shearing Plow that, that I'm aware of, and I don't want to misspeak, but as far as I'm, you know, I don't think it was a high profile program at the time. Then, and that's a startup, is that? Well, no, Shearing Plow was another large pharma company, and then okay. Shearing Plow was acquired by Merck, right? Because there's a lot of M&A amongst large pharma, right? Mm-hmm. Merck acquired Shearing Plow, Pfizer acquired Park Davis, Warner Lambert. So, you know, a lot of that inter-large pharma M&A is very common. So, you know, Merck ends up with this shearing plow slash organon program, you know, bumping around internally that, you know, I'm sure had some strong champions. But, you know, at that time, one has to remember that the idea of immunotherapy of cancer, or as it's also called now, kind of immuno-oncology, or as I call for short, IO therapies for immuno-oncology, they were not the the hot topic they are now. In, in fact, back in the mid-2000s and certainly before that, they were pretty much verboten in many ways oh, because, there really? had been, because there had been so many failures. You know, the field of the people who were researching at that point were, you know, called tumor biologists, tumor immunologists that were kind of doing this. And the kind of the main programs that had been brought forward back then were mostly cancer vaccines, which were kind of developed with a framework similar to the idea of developing, you know, infectious disease vaccines, which are, you know, really used to prevent infection. Very different, this idea of trying to treat an active cancer 
for all sorts of reasons that, you know, maybe we can go into later if anyone wants to discuss offline, we, we can. But And so there were a lot of failures in this cancer vaccine space because that was mostly what was defining kind of immunotherapy then. Now, there were a few approvals and successes. One of them even was fearing plow, you know, in terms of interferon, IL-2 that was developed and, you know, ultimately kind of really brought forward by, by Chiron, which then was acquired by Artis. And, you know, these had some glimmers of very interesting activity, particularly in like melanoma or renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer, but they were highly toxic, not very well tolerated. Only a small percentage of patients responded and an even smaller percentage responded really well. So you had a field for a long time that, you know, was defined by those few agents, interferon IL-2, BCG for bladder cancer, and then just all these failures, mostly in, in cancer vaccines. So it wasn't until really like 2010, 2011, when suddenly the world changed, mm-hmm. right? You had BMS's Opdivo, Mivolumab approved. You had Merck's Keytruda, Pembrolizumab approved. You also had Dendrion's cancer vaccine, Provenge uh, approved. Bit of a niche player, but it's still, you know, generating revenue. You had Yervoy also from, from BMS, Hitalumumab uh, uh, approved. So now all of a sudden you had these, what are mostly antibodies to what are, you know, PD-1, PDL one the checkpoint inhibitors. These are key proteins expressed, you know, on the T-cell and or tumor that are basically responsible for silencing the immune system, right? So essentially what the cancer does is it creates a permissive environment for itself, creates this immunosuppressive environment that blocks the body's kind of normal ability and desire to reject things that are wrong, whether that's, you know, a tumor or an invading, you know, bacteria or virus. And these antibodies basically unblock that blockage and allow the immune system to see the, the tumor. And they, although they don't work in all cancers and they don't work in all patients in all cancers and, you know, some tumors, they, you know, work much better like melanoma and RCC and lung cancer than others where they, you know, really have minimal activity like prostate cancer. They have created a massive sea change or a paradigm shift in, in how we think about treating cancer. So, you know, what, Merck, BMS, and all the others have done is what kind of pharma generally does is they invest a huge amount after first approvals in life cycle management. So Merck has done an amazing job. They have, you know, I don't know, a thousand plus, probably more ongoing clinical trials with Keytruda alone, mostly in combination, in combination with chemo, in combination with radiotherapy, combination with small molecule kinase inhibitors, and in combination with other novel IO agents, including other IO antibodies. So a lot of the news coming out of ASCO, for example, (laughs) over the weekend and through the part of this week will about other new targets besides PD-1 and PD-L1, like LAG-3 or TIGIN, et cetera. These are kind of the next generation immuno-oncology targets. So that's a, you know, Sounds like a long story, but that's only a, you know, a little teeny peek yeah. into the kind of the, you know, what it took to ultimately kind of bring that program forward. It took scientists who were true believers in yeah. kind of the value of the immune system in fighting cancer. It took the discovery of these particular targets. It was certainly, you know, lucky that some of these first targets proved to be as effective as they were because, you know, some of the other ones haven't been. So, you know, mm-hmm. 
know, Jim Allison got the a Nobel bit of Prize. Kismet there, but <laughs> yeah, certainly Kismet. Um, but so Jim Allison got the Nobel Prize for this, but many others contributed to kind of exploring that that they're called checkpoint inhibitors, this checkpoint pathways. And now they're kind of the foundational cornerstone of treatment, you know, either in a particular line or in you know, multiple lines across many, many different cancers with, as I said, a huge amount of continued development in other tumor types, other lines of therapy, other combinations going on right now. There are at least six, I think, approved checkpoints now. Merck is the, the biggest one followed by, you know, BMSs. And then, you know, you've got Pfizer and AstraZeneca, Roche Genentech, Regeneron, a few others, you know, also that are, that are out there. But, you know, it's, it's competitive, but, you know, the, the behemoth <laughs> in the room is, is Merck's Keytruda. Yeah, that's one that we're, most of us yeah. are familiar with. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like there are continuing innovations in justice, just in Keytruda. It's just in Keytruda, but if, I mean, I, in the, so there is an organization called Cancer Research Institute, CRI, which was actually founded by, I believe it was the daughter, Coley. Dr. Coley, here at what ultimately became Memorial Sloan Kettering, was considered to be really the, I don't know what you would call him, grandfather, great-grandfather of, uh, of immunotherapy because he was treating patients with what was called Coley's toxin. So that, you know, but it was never, and it was actually used up through the 60s, it was never formally approved. But in any event, CRI, you know, has funded a lot of the key research as a not-for-profit foundation uh, in, in immuno-oncology. And they also do a lot of tracking. And I think from their recent numbers, if I recall correctly, there are probably 3,000 trials going on with, wow. you know, all the different checkpoint inhibitors that there are. So Keytruda, Updevo, you know, Libteo, Vivencio, who am I missing? Anyway, so... I mean, all, all the players, but but by far the, the largest amount of clinical trial activity is, is with Merck's Keytruda. Understandable. So when we have so many different avenues, how do we decide or how does do the usual players, I guess, decide which therapy to pursue? How do they make it? Is it just a question of all of the money? Of course, that I mean, without the money, nothing could happen. Yeah. But what other factors do they consider? So, so many factors kind of going in to try to figure out what to bring forward and, and the kind of the questions and the degree that these are explored and how deep and broad certainly varies between whether that question is being asked internally within a large pharma company or whether it's being asked by a biotech company. Let's start with the biotech company since that's where a lot of the innovation, again, not all of it, but a lot of the innovation yes. begins, right? That's where... A lot of the innovation in, you know, adoptive cell therapy has been, which is a burgeoning area. And there are, you know, a number of approvals already where gene therapy began by and large. And there are a number of approvals there, you know, for, you know, rare monogenetic disorders. So, so the biotechs are kind of seen as the warehouse of innovation, if you will, and increasingly a large component of the pipeline, as it's called, the drug development pipeline of large pharma is deriving from you know, external to the pharma itself. So not from pharma's own internal research. You know, I think it's, it obviously varies by company, but I'd, in some companies it's 50%, maybe even 75% of, of their pipeline is coming from external, you know, deals, either licensing in a program from a, a biotech or outright acquiring the, the biotech, right? Like Amgen recently acquired, you know, a company called Five Prime. 
to get some of their antibodies and other programs. So when a biotech is trying to think about kind of what to develop, part of that question depends on kind of what, what their raison d'etre, you know, what do they have? I mean, if they're a discovery company, a platform company, right? Maybe they've got some novel, interesting way to generate antibodies, of which there are many. You've got to say, all right, well, all right, you can generate these antibodies. They may do some cool things that others can't, but how do you decide what to target, right? There are lots of targets. So that's one of the first gating things, right? Because while the VCs like to fund innovation, you don't want to be all about, you know, risk after risk after risk piled on top of each other. So very often you will see biotechs in order to prove their platform, but also to take some risk out of it, going after well-established targets, many of which may already be approved, right? Like HER2, the amount of drug development around HER2, despite the fact you've got Herceptin, you've got Pergina, you've got Ketsyla, you've got Inher2, you've got a number of, of, you know, multiple, you know, and they're mostly biologics, but they're also small molecules uh, approved in the space. And yet there's still unmet need, particularly for advanced stage breast cancer patients. So, you know, if you map where much of the activity is across all of the biopharma industry against targets, I think HER2 is at the lead and then EGFR, which they're also approved drugs. And so, you know, you do see a lot of attempts to de-risk by going after these. And well, it's kind of easy to say, oh, we've got too many, we don't need anymore. That's just a me too type agent. It's not going to be differentiated. In some cases, you know, these can be differentiated and provide significant clinical value to, to patients. So that's kind of one of the first things that happens, particularly with really risky platforms. So an antibody is one platform. It's pretty well established. Most of those companies, yes, they may go after her too, but they're also going after other novel targets, some of which have been more recently validated because there have been recent approvals like Trope 2, which there have been a recent ADC approval, uh, antibody drug conjugate approval for. The more risky the platform, the more likely they are to go after these well-validated targets. Like there are a lot of adoptive cell therapy companies and mostly their lead programs are going after CD19 which is approved for other cell therapies, you know, in, you know, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and acute lymphocytic leukemia, et cetera, because the, everyone and the, the investors are very kind of scared of, oh, we're going to take a brand new novel, unvalidated target, take a brand new unvalidated approach and put the two together and just double, you know, magnify our risk. So that's the first consideration is the target. And then of course, is where do you develop it, right? Which indications do you develop in, and that thinking, you know, generally has to start even before you start getting early signals and early clinical trials, which, of course, is going to more definitively tell you where to go, because you need to at least be thinking about where you might end up in advance of doing it. You can't just kind of wait around and then just be reactive. <laughs> then you're just scrambling. Right. So and that's where we spend a lot of time with our clients. These are early stage, as you said, you know, helping them inflect value with pre POC assets. So helping them say, you know, I've got a novel platform. Should you go after CD19 or BCMA or HER2 or EGM, or should you go after something more unvalidated? And then once having decided on the target, or they may already have the target, which indications are best? If you're going after HER2, sure, you can go after, you know, a number of different late-line therapies in, in breast cancer, but HER2 is expressed in other tumor types like gastric and even small percentages in other tumor types. So maybe the better thing to do is go for a niche approval in a 
percentage, but, you know, a molecularly defined subset of other tumor types that express, you know, or a subset of patients express or two. So those are all the questions that are kind of going on internally, as well as, you know, how much money do we have? What's our burn rate in order to prosecute that clinical trial development? What do we want to be when we grow up? Do we want to bring that drug all the way through to mid-stage phase two development, or do we want to license it out, or we hope to get acquired, you know, early on? So, you know, so there's there's true science and biology, the target being asked about. There's clinical development questions being asked. And there's kind of strategic, like, you know, what's the trajectory for the company all wrapped into the financial considerations of how much money do we have? How much could we raise, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So it's, it sounds like it's a balance. It has to be of all those different factors. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very delicate balance with a good, healthy dose of luck. <laughs> Obviously, you know, having, you know, experience is important. And that's one thing biotechs have nowadays increasingly that they didn't have, you know, as much of even frankly, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was, you know, a much more mature seasoned group of people leading the company, right? These are people either out of pharma or who have been in one or multiple other biotechs. So they kind of know what's involved because, you know, it's one thing to choose these things, to choose the target, to to choose the indication, to validate your platform, to start clinical development. But there are a lot of complexities around CMC manufacturing for some of these agents. There's regulatory complexities, not just for US, but differences between EU or you know, Asia, et cetera. So a lot of different skill sets you know, are, are required ultimately to kind of bring these programs forward far enough and then ultimately you know, to, to market. And so we did talk, we talked about biotech. What about some of the other players? How do they, are there, is their process, their thought process similar? The process is similar. It's obviously different. If you're a large pharma, you're not to say you're not concerned about money because you don't have infinite cash. Have a bit more padding. A lot of money money on hand. They invest a lot amount into R&D as a percentage of their, their revenue. So they ask many of these questions. They ask them more deeply. They spend more time analyzing them. They even go outside, right? I mean, as big as as these companies are, they often go outside for help doing things, everything from patient research to just kind of more kind of classic kind of market research to, you know, the big strategic questions that they need help on and so on. So that's why it's just, just massive ecosystem of all these different players that are involved. So something we haven't really talked about is academia and how those efforts play into the pipeline. I'm glad you mentioned that, yes, because this is an interesting and maybe even a little bit sticking point because many of the, so I said that the innovation engine by and large is biotech. They're generally not inventing it out of nowhere, right? Generally, biotech is coming out of academia. Where's that research for the, those platforms or those novel targets, et cetera, coming from? All of us, the taxpayers, Mm -hmm. NIH funding, which is why it's so important to fund NIH. But also at the same time, people question, well, but, you know, NIH is funding all this. What are we getting? What are we getting back now? You know, when you ask that question, it depends how you what time frame and how you answer. Right. Ultimately, we are getting back because we're getting these important drugs. But there are a lot of intermediaries (laughs) along the way. (laughs) So without getting into policy or other things like that. Between our tax dollars and the (laughs) co-insurance. Yeah. But at at the end of the day, you know, it it is within academia that the real engine of innovation. Now that gets taken within the biotech and it gets kicked up significantly and it gets 
formalized in order to, you know, enable it to be productive, to be credible, to ultimately get approval, right? Because, you know, most academic labs, even though increasingly they are kind of starting to develop some drugs and bring them to, you know, at least preclinical, they're not necessarily set up, you know, and don't have the expertise, you know, once you're kind of into early clinicals, although some, some are doing that certainly, you know, and that's where the biotech and then the pharma companies come into play. But many of these biotechs are founded, you know, by either the entrepreneur scientists themselves, or they're founded by, you know, a VC or early stage VC, which there are a number that just go out and scout and say, oh, you know, our team has found this really interesting, cool mechanism or target or new platform at this university. And that could be, you know, anywhere in the world, frankly. And, you know, decides to build a company around it. That's kind of generally how it goes. So if I understand correctly, it sounds like the foundational foundations are usually set or often set by academia. The foundational research is often coming out of academia and not always, but often. Often. And then generally goes to biotech and then to pharma. And then to pharma. No, certainly, you know, there are biotechs that are already established that, you know, will license programs or IP or technologies from from academia, right? So they've already started with something and they need, they're either acquiring additional pieces or maybe something orthogonal. And pharma also does increasingly look early stage and, and there are even groups within large pharma for doing kind of early stage investments. And most pharma have their own corporate VC groups mm. that are also making investments, you know, either investing in the lab and some type of early collaboration or investing or helping form a new co, co-investing along with more traditional, you know, VCs, et cetera. So what yeah. I'm talking about is just, a, you know, is it's it a just a network? Oh, um, it, yes. And there are many, many layers and many more nuances and complexities to, to, to this. So often in practice, you know, the idea comes, why is there a treatment for one diagnosis versus another. And I know we talked about reasons why, you know, therapy, but can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, it's a really complicated question. Part of it's tied to what I already said about risk, Mm -hmm. right? So some of those, if you're choosing to take out some risk by going after a validated target, mostly that's going to take you to more validated indications, which also by definition are also going to be more competitive like breast cancer. The other thing, so the other side of taking risk out is not going into places where there is huge risk. So there are tumor types, and I'm not not even talking about small niche tumor types, right? Because there are tumor types where only 100 people have them or 1,000, right? There's not not even orphan. It's sub-orphan or sub-sub-orphan diseases. And clearly, these need to be addressed. They also need to be addressed when they're just, you know, not cancers, but just other very rare diseases. All right, we'll put that aside for the moment. (laughs) Even in kind of bigger, more well-known tumor types, there has been a hesitancy to pursue because of the perceived risk that in often cases is a real risk in these tumor types. So let's just take two, for example, glioblastoma, very high unmet need, right? Absolutely. Very poor outcomes, you know, pancreatic cancer, another very high unmet need, even bigger mm-hmm. epidemiology than, than glioblastoma. Also very high on that need. Again, in, in all cases, these are generally diagnosed late. Certainly pancreatic cancer, most are diagnosed late. Good percentage are not resectable. What do you do? Well, 
one could say, well, there should be more clinical development there, and there should be. But there's a sizable when, when we're faced with a patient. That's yes. A- and, but there is a sizable amount of clinical development there, you know. But part of the reason why maybe the amount is not as proportional to the unmet need, and I've done some mapping before and others have too, where you just kind of plot how many drugs are in development against either the epidemiology or against the actual unmet need. And unmet need is best expressed either as one or five-year survival. You know, it parallels pretty well, but there are some, you know, kind of major places where there are gaps. But something like pancreatic or, or GBM, there have been a lot a lot of drug failures, all sorts of different mechanisms, all sorts of things that people have done and failure after failure. Now, you know, I don't know that now we should go into the reasons for those. They're, they're differing. First of all, GBM is very heterogeneous. It's not like one thing. So, you know, a given target, while it may work for a certain percentage of patients, you know, may not work for all. And since we may not know how to identify those patients up front, it means when you do a clinical trial, your signal is going to be drowned out. And so the drug may fail. And for pancreatic cancer, you know, also the biology is complex because pancreatic cancer basically builds this dense fibrotic stroma around it. It makes it very hard for, for drugs of any sort to get to the cancer. So for those and other reasons, you know, they're both highly, you know, they have high kind of chemo resistance and other things. This makes it really hard. So we've seen antibodies fail, small molecule kinase inhibitors fail, next generation chemo agents fail, cell therapies, vaccine. I mean, time and again, in in both these indications, things have failed. And when things fail that much, it makes it hard to convince someone to fund doing research in those areas. Now, again, it's not like there's no research. There is a lot of clinical development in, in these areas perhaps not as much as there should be given their unmet needs because of that overhang of the failure rate in those tumor types. So that is where foundations can be helpful, right? So there are many foundations that have been started often by either survivors or family members. They may have well to do, you know, to begin with and can start the endowment, but, you know, there are some great foundations out there in solid tumors, some of which are obviously well-known, like in breast cancer, Susan Coleman, et cetera, and, and you know, others in, in chemo malignancies like the Myeloma Research Foundation or the Chemioma Foundation, et cetera. These are very helpful because part of their mandate, so I can speak more fluently to Leukemia Lymphoma Society, LLS, because we've worked with them for over a decade. Part of their mandate is to fund where biopharma does not. So go for the riskier things. So they're, they're right? filling the gap. They're filling the gap. Yep. So that's what the foundations can do is fill the gap either by the tumor types that aren't getting as much attention as they should, or the therapeutic approaches that, you know, maybe they're, you know, they're more swing for the fences. They're very high risk. That's not where VCs may want to fund or pharma wants to go. But if they were to work, you know, they could be, you know, groundbreaking. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Sure. It's a question that comes up and, you know, it's goes through your mind often. Like, I wish I, I would want to help this person, but what tools are there? What tools are available? So you uh, work with so many biotechs as a consultant. What trends are you seeing in? Yes. So one of the may not be the best metric, but it's a very <laughs> tangible metric that one can use is you can look at pipeline activity, right? So where is the clinical development pipeline? And you can also look at deals and you can look at funding. 
you know, VC. Where's funding. the money going? <laughs> Either seed funding or Series A funding. Like, where are the money? Where's the money going? Either funding money or deal making money. That includes licensing and acquisition. So, you know, over the past seven plus years, there are really kind of two big categories where investment has gone. Investment, startups, deal making, etc. It's precision oncology. Right. These are targeted agents going to specific molecular changes, right? EGFR mutations, ALK mutations, FGFR mutations, BCR, ABLE mutations. So, well, these are solid tumor because that's a very defined molecular target. You can define the patient population. You have a much higher rate of response because you're really defining who should get a given drug. And you actually have a much better clinical development chance right? Because as we were, as I gave in the kind of the counter example, negative example for, for GBM or pancreatic, you know, you may not necessarily know who's going to be responsive. And so your signal of those who are responsive may be washed out in the trial will, will read out negative. So that type of precision medicine, and we just literally had approval a few days ago for, from Amgen for their RAS targeting agent. RAS had been like the big struggle for the biopharma industry for, for decades, right? They just couldn't drug it. And finally, you know, people found that there were some particular mutations within RAS that could be drugged. So now we have the first RAS drug from Amgen that got approved just, you know, days or maybe a week ago. So precision oncology and then immuno-oncology. I mean, immuno-oncology for a period of time, say from like 2014, 15 through about 2018 was like probably two thirds of the highest value deals that were being done, meaning either the money upfront that a pharma was going to pay to a biotech or the overall value of the deal. So including downstream payments, milestones, and et cetera. It's kind of equalized a bit over the past few years with kind of more of the precision medicine, you know, taking so it's more balanced, more like kind of 50-50 for these high profile deals. And it probably is true overall. And, but even in the most recent analysis we've done for like, you know, this past the year to date or 2020 to year to date, looks like, again, kind of a lot more of a push towards the immuno-oncology agents again. I mean, people are very enamored of that and, and with good cause because, you know, tumors are very complex. They're plastic, they're heterogeneous, they change under treatment, right? They're a little Darwinian experiments going on. So the minute you treat them, that, that tumor is going to respond and counteract what you're treating it with. So it's very hard if you have, you know, one agent or even a toolkit of 10 agents to say, you know, I'm going to go against this, this foe that constantly keeps changing when I do something. The immune system is built for that. The immune system is plastic, adaptive heterogeneous, can change in real time, just like the tumor. So in many ways, it is the best matched to deal with a cancer. And I think in part, that's why, well, that's the kind of the, the biologic and clinical rationale for why people are and should be so interested in, in kind of harnessing the immune system. I think the very practical reason is, you know, Keytruda is going to be the largest selling pharmaceutical product in a few years of any, not just oncology, period. Okay. So- you know, this is a very big category, and you said it before, chasing the money. Where the money is, people will go, and they'll keep going, and they'll go again and again. So, Sounds like it checks off all the boxes. <laughs> yes. 
the checkpoints in particular check off the boxes. So vast, you have vast experience. So you might be the best person to answer this question. What are your predictions for the future of oncology pharmaceutical therapy development? I know we've gone over a couple things. So what do you think is the next frontier? So the next frontier, there are lots of famous quotes about predictions being oh, mostly yeah. wrong, but, but nevertheless, <laughs> I think what they're, the prediction that I'm going to make is less about what will definitively become the drugs of the future, but more about the types of approaches that I think are going to be heavily invested on and focused in over the coming five to 10 plus years. And I think it's the idea of more engineering of biology to make the therapies we use more multifunctional and perhaps more regulatable or controllable in the body. So whether it's a antibody that can be controlled externally. What does that mean? Well, that means that if you've got side effects with a certain antibody and you build in something that allows it to be active in one configuration, but when you give a drug, it's no longer active, right? You could give a small molecule oh. drug or, or the other way around. So you turn it on and off and the same thing's being done with cell therapies. So this idea of conditionally active and controllable as well as targeting multiple things, right? Because we just talked about how plastic and diverse and heterogeneous the tumors are. So, you know, if you can, if you know you need to target HER2 and ultimately kind of three other key targets that become important when, you know, when you modulate HER2 and the tumor tries to escape, if you can hit HER2 and all those other targets at the same time, wouldn't that be pretty cool? Absolutely. So people are looking at ways to do that. You can do that with gene editing or things that are kind of like gene therapy. You could do it with certain types of cell therapy. You can do it with RNA-based therapeutics. You can do it with certain multifunctional anim- antibody or antibody-like molecules. And you can build in that regulatory, you know, the regulation that I talked about, being able to kind of control that so you have better quality of life and safety for the patients. And so, you know, that kind of more complex or more refined engineering or bioengineering is I think where a lot of things are, are going. It's going to take a while to get there, but you know, ultimately, whether that means we're talking about some mini type of robot, there was an interesting kind of point <laughs> counterpoint at a, at a conference that I attend called uh, and speak at called IO360 every February here in Manhattan. And that was one of the interesting kind of point counterpoints between two kind of luminaries in the oncology field was kind of where the future is and this idea of kind of robots. Now, that, that doesn't mean they're little, little miniature silicon-based things that are, but, it, but the idea of robot being something that is responsive, that can do multiple things, that can change in reaction to changing environment that's what's kind of meant. And that's what I'm meaning with this more complex and interesting engineering. That is so exciting to be able to, can you control sci-fi, but you know, there are people, you know, (laughs) right now, some of these are in the, some of these are starting in the clinic right now too. So. Wow. That's so exciting. It's also, you said it's already starting. Some of them are already going into the clinic, you know, the more, the early generations of, of these things. Yeah. The first steps. Yeah. The first steps, but soon maybe. We'll get to the nanobots. Well, and there, you know, that's that's one thing too. So going back to that question of kind of why are certain cancers, do they not have as many new drugs or or powerful drugs, et cetera? Again, it's not for lack of trying. Like a third, roughly, of the overall biopharmaceutical pipeline. 
So wherever that's coming from, wherever in the world or biotech or pharma or whoever, a third of that pipeline is cancer. That's a lot. That's a lot of drugs. That's like 5,000, 6,000, maybe more drugs of all sorts that are being looked at to try and treat, you know, sometimes a very specific singular subset of one particular type of cancer. And sometimes, you know, trying to go after every cancer. It's a very broad acting agent like Keytruda. So again, it's not for lack of trying. It may not always be the right approach. It may not always be the smartest approach because, you know, lots of other things complicate decision-making. It's not just a purely rational process. So perhaps not lack of effort, but lack of success. Yes. And then sometimes lack of focus or sometimes getting trapped within a certain mindset, right? Uh Like the immune system will never work. Yeah. Immune agents will never work. Right. That's a need to stop there. (laughs) Right. Across getting away from dogma, you know, is, is something that is, is harder than you should think in science, but maybe that's a broader conversation. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Jeff, this has been a really great conversation and discussion. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you with any follow-up questions or just want to reach out to you at all, what's the best way for them to do that? So there's there's two ways. The way that most likely I would see easily and not accidentally <laughs> miss would be like reaching out via LinkedIn, right? So LinkedIn connection and messaging. They can also find my email if they go to cellohealthbioconsulting.com to the website and go to the who we are and the bios. And I think the emails for everyone are, are there. It's just that I get so many emails that there is the chance that if I don't recognize an email coming from someone I don't know, either the spam system will block it or I just won't see it because I get so many emails. So it will disappear into the ether. (laughs) I've had those. So I will add the links to your LinkedIn and also the Cello website here in the show notes for anyone who would like to follow up again. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Alicia, thank you. It's been been great talking with you. Take care, you too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Working in Oncology. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.